So our panelists are Miriam Baer, Patrice Bridges, Linda Fisher, and Jonathan Macy, most of whom probably need no further introduction, although if they would like to introduce themselves further, they're welcome to do so. So I will turn it over first to um, Miriam. Thank you, Miriam. So thank you so much for having me, and I, I really enjoyed the last panel. Um, so I'm going to be talking about fraud within the higher education sector. In particular, I'm going to talk about the Varsity Blues prosecution, which probably is familiar to a lot of you, which involves a very wealthy parents uh, whose students obtained admission to highly competitive and prestigious schools through a series of illicit schemes. And then I'm going to talk to you about another higher education fraud, which might be not as familiar to those of you, uh, which has involved Temple's business school, Fox Business School, um, in which uh, they attempted to defraud students and donors by massaging the data that they provided to the US News Ranking Survey for MBA programs. Uh, and so both resulted in uh, criminal prosecutions for, among other things, wire fraud and what we call honest services fraud. And I'm going to stop here for just one second, based on what went on in the last panel, just to talk to you a little bit about federal criminal fraud. Okay, so in the federal criminal world, uh, there are certain things we have to prove that you know, wouldn't have been what we were talking about earlier, and then there are certain things we don't have to prove. Um, so federal criminal law does not take account of, for example, uh, the victim's reliance. We do not have to prove reliance. We do not have to prove damages, which isn't to say that damages doesn't show up at the sentencing phase. Um, and the reason for that, by the way, is that the idea is, is that criminal fraud punishes the act of scheming, right? It's a conduct statute, not a result statute. Now, obviously, there are other things we do have to prove in the federal criminal world. There's the whole mailing use of the interstate wires, but in today's world, that's really not a, a, a very big deal because we all do that. So that's not the problem. But there is another thing we have to show, and this has actually become more important in the last few years. Uh, Justice Kagan has alluded, not even alluded to it, she has outlined it and underlined it in several of her opinions, which is that fraud in the criminal world has to be about property. The target of your fraud has to be property. Now, it doesn't have to be uh, always tangible property, and in fact, my paper is about intangible property, and the way in which intangible property prosecutions can create these sort of weird messages that I think are counterproductive. But you got to have property. And because you have to have property, I'm arguing, and this, in fact, the name of this piece is going to be called Square Peg Frauds, that we've created these sort of square peg prosecutions where we've got cases that don't quite look like what I would call a paradigmatic fraud. And in our zeal to sort of put them through the round hole that is fraud, we're creating some real problems. All right, so to, to show you what I mean, let me tell you a little bit about Varsity Blues and then about Temple. Now, Varsity Blues, you probably all remember, you have parents who are using several tools through a, a consultant they use to get uh, admission for their children to these highly competitive colleges and universities. They cheat on the, they get their kids to cheat on the ACT or SAT by asking for accommodations and then having a special proctor take the exams. They bribe the coaches of various teams. Interestingly enough, usually not the sort of core, it's not like basketball and football, it's all these teams like water polo and sailing, right? Uh, to get their kids accepted as elite athletes. And in fact, they lie on the schools, at, uh, on the applications themselves, portraying the students as high caliber athletes uh, when they had about as much athletic prowess as me. 
Um, so this is like this list, laundry list of things that they do. Now, Temple Business School is a little bit different. Uh, Porat, who is a very well-respected dean, and several of his employees are eventually caught in a years-long scheme uh, to defraud students by lying to US News uh, about the kinds of items that normally would not matter to the reasonable student applicant, right? Uh, so they lie about the number of students who have taken the GRE and the amount of work experience that said students have. And again, this is the kind of thing where if you lie even a little bit, so to go back to, I think Emily was talking about little cheaters, once that gets put through the US News algorithm, that can become a really big cheat. So for a number of years, uh, Temple Business School was the number one online MBA program. And Peratt marketed the hell out of that. So they used that to get more students to apply, and he used that to get the donors to give money. And in fact, he would give speeches in which he equated the diploma to a piece of stock. So he'd say, your diploma is stock in this school, and it's going up as shown by our ranking. Okay, that's important because the court eventually takes admit, uh, uh, account of that. All right, so both of these cases rely to a heavy degree on losses of intangible property. Now you might say, well, no, people still, you know, they paid money for tuition and stuff like that. But the cases made a lot of the fact that what uh, the entities were losing were often intangible. Um, so let me just, for example, uh, offer up, for example, with Varsity Blues, right? Um, what did the university, the universities in those cases were actually denominated victims in those cases, which is probably surprising to many of you, because if you ask a lay person in Varsity Blues, who's the victim of this kind of corrupt situation where parents are lying about their kids being great athletes and thriving coaches, you would probably say, or at least many people did say, that the real losers in this situation are the applicants who aren't cheating, right? Are the random students out there who applied to college and don't get in and never lied. And indeed, some of those applicants tried to sue USC and some of the other institutions that were involved, the universities. And their cases were thrown out because they basically were told, sorry, you have no standing. But in the criminal world, how did we make a case? Well, we said USC was deprived of two things. First of all, it was deprived of the honest services of its coach, right? And then we said it was deprived of the ability to allocate its slots however it sees fit. In other words, those admission slots, and in fact, this is what one of the courts said, admission slots at competitive universities such as USC are both limited and highly coveted. The ability to grant admission is an asset of the university subject to its control. So basically what was happening, and in fact, this was uh, well reported at the time, the consultant who was sort of putting this whole thing together explained to the parents, look, there are three ways to get into schools like these. One, you could be amazing and have terrific credentials and, and all the, you know, you'd be perfect and wonderful. Your kid's not that. Two, you could donate tons of money. That's the back door. But that's going to be lots and lots of money in the millions. So what I'm going to give you is the side door. And he called it the side door. And the parents weren't paying millions and millions, they were paying like $200,000 and $300,000. So notice what is effectively going on here. By saying USC was robbed of its right to allocate a student slot to, potentially, the highest bidder, we actually cement and ossify the status quo whereby schools optimize their admission slots to bring in as much money in tuition dollars or donations as possible. 
Notice by calling USC a victim, we basically tell USC, keep doing what you're doing. So if you thought that Varsity Blues was gonna somehow change and level the playing field, you were deeply disappointed. And indeed, in the wake of those Varsity Blues prosecutions, that is exactly what you see. You see, they're partly upset because they see how little uh, uh, prison time some of these folks get, but they also say, wow, nothing changed. Well, I argue that's not just that nothing changed in spite of the prosecution. I say that nothing changed because in order to make a case, you ended up having to denominate organizations as victims who you might have wanted to actually put pressure on to change things and to make an effort to change their actual admission processes. Let me talk in the last few minutes I have about Temple Business School. Now, Temple Business School, as I said, it defrauds its students and donors not by lying directly to them, but by lying to a third party. And the lies it provides, again, really wouldn't have been all that interesting to anyone, but for the fact that that third party, US News, has this algorithm, okay? Um, now, you might say, well, no, the property was tangible. The students were deprived of, uh, of tuition, or maybe they didn't get uh, opportunities for employment. And yet, that wasn't what the government really relied on. They were pretty open at trial saying what was lost was the student's right to allocate his assets as he sees fit, including the right to go to the most prestigious school. And indeed, the two students whose uh, testimony was quoted and cited extensively in the court's dis uh, dismissal of a motion for acquittal said the following. Student A liked the education or quality of the program better at Syracuse, his second choice school. But he chose to, offend to attend Temple specifically because of the rankings. For him, the value of an MBA wasn't just in the quality of the education, but in its brand. Having a good brand on his resume would make him more competitive. While he acknowledged that he received an education and degree from Fox, this is Temple's known as Fox, he was adamant he didn't get what he paid for. He didn't get the prestige that was promised to him in the beginning. Student B also chose Fox for its number one ranking. He even goes so far to say, if all he wanted was an MBA from an accredited school, he could have just gone to Ball State for $20,000 and gotten the same piece of paper. Without its ranking, Temple's online MBA was a great MBA program, but just another regular MBA program. So again, notice how important the prestige was here. And that's what essentially is what is being argued. I lost this prestige. Now, I don't, there's an additional thing here, which is the court goes on to say at one point that this is really almost like a share of stock and that the rankings are sort, it implies that the rankings are kind of like a stock market. That's a problem because, you know, we protect the, the stock market because we think that it's okay for people to rely on the in integrity of a stock market price. It seems to me a quite heady proposition to say that a student who makes a decision to attend a school does so in reliance on the integrity of the US news rankings. Okay, one last epilogue. Um, months after Porat was sentenced, Columbia University announced that it would not participate in the 2023 undergraduate US news rankings. Why? Because one of its mathematics professors posted online an analysis uh, demonstrating the high likelihood that Columbia had probably been submitting inaccurate information to US news. Now you could say, this is good. This shows why it's so good that there was a criminal prosecution. But of course, the story is more ambiguous because Columbia didn't withdraw from the US News Survey until one of its tenured professors posted a scathing letter that, that then drew viral attention. So this was more about detection than sanction. 
if you're with me here that this whole criminal prosecution thing isn't changing things and isn't likely to change things, the question is, what should we do instead? I don't have another 10 minutes, but my own uh, thought is that we should have far more regulation, and then we should have um, some sort of certification requirement that I'm happy to uh, discuss more uh, during the comments. Thank you so much. Just for my short person problems. Hold on. <laughs> I'm Catrice Bridges Copeland. Thank you all so much for having me. I'm going to be talking about healthcare fraud and the erosion of trust. So, in healthcare, trust is a foundational concept, right? Patients need to trust the competency of their healthcare providers. And perhaps more importantly, they need to trust that these healthcare providers. Um, are going to demonstrate impartial concern for their well-being, right? That's their number one priority is the well-being of the patient. And in addition to trusting providers, care outcomes are better uh, when patients trust the healthcare system as a whole. And so when I speak about the health system as a whole, I'm talking about providers, insurers, both public and private, pharmaceutical and medical device companies, government regulators, and the like. Unfortunately, trust in the healthcare system has been on the decline. Uh, according to Gallup, in 1975, 80% of the public had confidence in the medical system compared to only 38% in 2022. And a major contributor to the decline in trust is healthcare. Uh, as an example, I'm just going to talk about a couple of pharmaceutical frauds. So Purdue Pharma pled guilty to marketing and selling opioids to healthcare providers, uh, even though they had reason to believe that those providers were diverting uh, those opioids to uh, abusers. Uh, Pfizer paid the government $2.3 billion for marketing their drug Bextra as safe for a use that the FDA specifically said was unsafe. Uh, GlaxoSmithKline paid $3 billion for paying kickbacks to physicians to get them to prescribe their drug uh, and for marketing their drugs for unapproved uses. I could go on and on, but my time is limited. Uh, so on the one hand, the aggressive enforcement of the fraud laws um, might instill some trust, right? Because you might say to yourself, okay, well, the government is regulating this and they're taking this seriously and closely monitoring. Uh, on the other hand, these scandals can weaken trust by confirming a public attitude of distrust, right? So this is sort of the paradoxical nature uh, of trust. And when it comes to pharmaceutical companies, the scandals appear to contribute to mistrust and reduce confidence in the medical system. Only 34% of the public trust pharmaceutical companies. And this lack of trust has real-world consequences. If we just think about the COVID-19 pandemic and the inability to get people to take vaccines, they said, we don't trust pharmaceutical companies. We don't trust the government, right? So this really matters. And so one of the questions that I've uh, been thinking about is, you know, why is fraud so prevalent in, in healthcare? And what, does the what role does the government have uh, to play to restore trust, right, to our healthcare system? And so for the first question, 
Fraud is prevalent in healthcare because the design of the system makes it incredibly easy to commit. So historically, federal healthcare programs such as Medicare and Medicaid have used a fee-for-service reimbursement model, which means that providers receive payment for each uh, service or thing that they provide to the patient, which incentivizes them to provide um, more services and more things because that increases the amount of money you get paid. <clears throat> In addition, Medicare and Medicaid operate on basically an honor system. Um, when the programs were created in the 1960s, the government was concerned that healthcare providers not provide services to Medicare and Medicaid patients. They were not concerned with fraud. Um, the fraud laws would not come until the 1970s. The government wanted to just pay claims as quickly as possible, and so they paid claims before fully verifying them, uh, which you can imagine is problematic when you're processing millions of claims every single day. And once they discover fraud, they chase the fraudsters in an effort to recoup the money, and this is what's known as the chase model. Unfortunately, this setup makes providers believe they can get away with padding bills, submitting claims for medically unnecessary services or for services that were never uh, provided. And so our reimbursement system itself is untrustworthy in this, uh, in this situation. And in the past 20 years, the level and degree of fraud has truly exploded. Congress has been very slow to address the problems that exist in the billing system. In 2016, what, oh, nearly 50 years or 50, more than 50 years after Medicare comes into existence, the government begins to gradually shift the reimbursement system to a value-based reimbursement system will pay for outcomes rather than the volume of services. And value-based reimbursement also promotes relationships between providers and continuity of care. And the shift to value-based reimbursement certainly has a lot of potential uh, to transform uh, our system and possibly to increase trust. Um, but the shift has been slow because of cost and fraud and abuse laws. So the government, through its healthcare fraud laws and enforcement efforts, can help to promote trustworthy uh, conditions. And when we're talking about healthcare, it's imperative that the government protect patients from providers who are driven by financial incentives uh, rather than the needs of their patients. So, for example, the anti-kickback statute prohibits providers from benefiting financially from referrals to other providers. Now, of course, referrals are uh, referrals that um, come with pay, right, are perfectly acceptable in other industries. But in healthcare, there's a concern about the corruption of medical decision making. Uh, as well as overutilization. And so the concern is that if a provider receives a payment for a referral, then the referral decision may not be made in the best interest of the patient. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, providers acting in the best interest of the patient rather than their own financial interests is a key component of trust in the provider-patient uh, relationship. So by enacting the anti-kickback statute and pursuing healthcare providers that violate it, the government reinforces the ethical obligations of providers and assists in creating these trustworthy uh, conditions. 
Our problem occurs because the anti-kickback statute was designed to police uh, a fee-for-service reimbursement system. It's focused on financial incentives from care decisions and so it prevent value-based reimbursement because the goal of those integrate uh, excuse me the goal of those arrangements is to integrate providers clinically and financially to achieve better care outcomes so there's this misalignment between the effects of existing fraud and abuse laws and the government's goals to um, get to value-based care so in 2021 government implemented some new exceptions and safe harbors to keep value-based arrangements outside of the purview of the anti-kickback statute uh, as well as the physician self-referral law. Um, it's important to keep in mind, however, that while value-based reimbursement will likely reduce overutilization of healthcare services, it is not a silver bullet for healthcare fraud. Um, Value-based arrangements have their own fraud risks. Uh, they require providers to take on financial risks based on the quality of the services that they provide, um, which some may see as a threat to their livelihood, right? Because they're used to being paid for every single service or thing that they provide. And so some providers might falsify data to earn incentives or prevent a reduction in payment based on quality measures. Uh, in addition, there may still be some risks of payment for referrals of healthy patients because healthy patients will presumably improve a provider's quality measures. And so the complete transition from fee-for-service to value-based reimbursement is going to take a long time. And in the interim, the government really needs to focus on creating trustworthy conditions in both the fee-for-service space and the value-based reimbursement uh, space. And rather than exempting value-based reimbursement from laws such as the anti-kickback statute, uh, I think that the government needs to uh, specify that the anti-kickback statute only applies to fee-for-service arrangements uh, and address the unique fraud risk that exists in value-based arrangements in its own fraud law. And frankly, I think that the public can't afford for the government to make the same mistake that they did when they implemented Medicare and Medicaid without any accompanying fraud laws to address the flawed fee-for-service reimbursement system. Um, and I also think that there's going to have to be a bit of a public relations campaign. It may be difficult to convince the public that value-based reimbursement is not the same thing as managed care, uh, which was criticized in the 1990s for prioritizing cost-cutting over care quality. And I think that failure to address the fraud risks in value-based arrangements uh, may lead to further distrust in our healthcare system. Thank you. <clears throat> So bear with me a minute. Is, is it? Okay, there we go. Oh. All right, so I'm good. All right, so we're following the parade of horribles here from admission scandals to healthcare fraud and, and to consumer fraud. I'm going to specifically focus on mortgage fraud. 
Um, and I just really want to thank the organizers of this conference because it is so well organized, so seamless, and is proceeding so that everything dovetails with everything else, which I hope means that I can speed through the first part of my presentation, which is on the framework, analytical framework, that I'm going to use to talk about mortgage fraud. Consumer fraud can be either a societal phenomenon or a violation of law. I'm discussing the latter. And that distinction will uh, prove important uh, as I move along. So consumer fraud is nothing new, as we learned in the last panel, too. Uh, we've made some progress in the last 100 years. I don't think any of us are going to go out and buy Dr. Sims arsenic complexion wafers now, even though they're guaranteed to be completely harmless. We also know from the last panel that caveat emptor applied for a very long time to transactions, economic transactions in the US. Um, and that really only started changing en masse when consumer fraud statutes were enacted in states in the 60s. So what does caveat emptor mean? Ain't no such thing as a free lunch, right? We all know what that is. So we're not going to eradicate consumer fraud, right? I think we can all uh, admit that. And I think human nature tends in that direction in any event. Uh, but it remains important to limit it. So the question is how much and by what means. So that's sort of a hovering, overarching question over the conference. So before I move on, I want to remind you, and I took this slide from the, uh, uh, the video that was posted. Um, so students probably have seen it before, the Venn diagram. But um, I need to highlight that Consumer fraud, and the statutes vary from state to state, but rarely requires proof of a specific intent to deceive. So it is not common law fraud. So why do we call it fraud? Well, it's kind of sloppy usage. And I myself will continue now calling it consumer fraud, but what I really mean is unfair and deceptive acts and practices. Okay, that's the formal, the formal name of the statutes. It's just too much of a mouthful to say it every single time. Um, so the intent standard really is not an intent standard uh, so much as a negligence or sometimes even strict liability sta uh, standard. So as we all know, uh, trust is central to business. And uh, with consumer fraud, we're talking about commercial trust applicable to both parties, merchant and consumer. These statutes do not apply business to business. So everyone needs to adhere to norms of good faith and fair dealing in the marketplace. Uh, however, a fair amount of puffery is allowed, too, because it's assumed that the parties to a transaction understand this, and therefore they're armed with sufficient knowledge to be able to transact fairly. But market failures are too frequent to rely on an unimpeded market to self-police. Uh, and we know also from the last panel that one of the big issues here with consumer fraud is uh, the lopsided and often inherently unequal nature of consumer to business transactions. And of course, we're responsible for our freely made choices and we have agency up to a point, but the location of that point is contested. And that, I think, is also one of the overarching issues here. We do know that humans are highly susceptible to manipulation. Ads and sale pitches zero in on our deepest wants, some of them even subconscious. Sophisticated marketing techniques, including particularly target marketing, follow us all over the internet. Partly because we're online so much. I mean, is part of this our own fault? Probably, and we can talk more about that later. 
But we're not as free to choose as it, as it might seem initially. I mean, a very easy to understand example is buying a mattress. Uh, you can't go to Consumer Reports and rate mattresses because the model numbers and names are constantly changing. Why are they changing? Because the industry knows that we have no way to research it other than to go to the sleepy store and jump up and down on the mattresses for a while, and then six months later, of course, they're starting to disintegrate. So, contracts of adhesion. Consumers frequently are pressured to sign these complex contracts without an opportunity to read them. Uh, prime examples, buying a car, buying a house. Um, mostly these days, these contracts contain mandatory arbitration clauses and for, often forum selection clauses. And I have a confession to make. Two days ago, after 20 years with Verizon, I switched our family cell phone plan, or I tried to switch it over to AT&T. I spent almost three hours on online chat. There were so many layers of fraud verification. I mean, that's good, but there goes all my, you know, there went my day. Um, so about after two and three quarters hours, um, the agent pops this little terms and conditions thing up on the screen next to the chat screen. And I would have had to click several times more to actually see the terms and conditions, plus I had a million other things to do. I agreed to them without reading them. I mean, I, consumer fraud lawyer and teacher, if I do it, y'all are doing it too, right? So this is part of the problem that we're all facing. And consumers tend to assume there's nothing that can be done. Further exacerbating these effects are the increasing monetization and commodification of almost everything in our society. Market economies can be expanding into areas previously reserved for personal interactions which transform those interactions into exchanges for profit, enlarging in, the, in that move itself the certain influence of the market. So the transactionalism itself erodes trust, in part because personal trust is more robust than commercial trust. I mean, we all know as consumers we have to be on our guard to some extent. So examples, online dating, Instagram, TikTok, you are a product to be marketed and sold while simultaneously a user of these apps. So let's uh, turn to the analysis of the effects uh, of these frauds on consumers because that's gonna be directly related to erosion of trust. Consumers are not a monolithic category. So the effects of consumer trust are gonna depend a lot on education, sophistication, and wealth. Therefore, out goes the neoclassical model of the rational person, or when I was at the University of Chicago Law School in the late 70s, the rational man. Uh, and I don't need to belabor that point, it's been covered. And while I think behavioral economics is an improvement on the neoclassical model, what we really need here is contextualization. It's the only way, I think, to more accurately represent the financial situations and daily realities of most American consumers. One group, us all of us in this room, I would hazard to say, well-educated, informed, and affluent, willing and able to spend some time doing research, making calculations, evaluating risks. But a second group is larger. Less than 40% of the U.S. population has a bachelor's degree. Fewer than that have sufficient surplus time to make long-term calculations. And just look at people with young children. Time poverty, the phenomenon is called. I wish I had known there was a name for that back when I was trying to get tenure and raise my own kids. Uh, 
So even those of us who are highly privileged, you know, suffer from time poverty. But the poorer people are, the more likely they can afford adequate childcare, and they work multiple jobs. They're not going to go home from, uh, you know, from their second job at 10 o'clock at night and looking at consumer reports. In fact, most people are living paycheck to paycheck, sometimes desperate, lacking financial literacy. The result is consumer vulnerability. So let me move on now to mortgage. Oh, actually, I should have had shown this slide earlier, just illustrating the, the different groups of American consumers. Mortgage fraud. What is it? It encompasses a wide range of lending practices, usually for home purchase or refinance, but also home equity borrow, uh, borrowing. Excuse me. It's perpetrated by small local players, such as mortgage brokers, on up to the largest financial institutions in the world, uh, which we also heard about in the last panel, and we know is the primary cause of the Great Recession. Um, it has been perpetrated more widely on people of color, sometimes deliberately targeted to neighborhoods. And there's empirical proof of that. First type of mortgage fraud I'm going to talk about, loan application fraud. False information used to procure large mortgages with high fees going to agents. During the aughts, it generally involved misrepresentation of borrowers' actual creditworthiness and ability to repay. So mortgage brokers created financial information on applications, sold the loans to financial institutions where they were bundled into securities, often in the form of bonds, thousands of mortgages, uh, and sold to institutional investors. And uh, we saw some uh, subprime mortgage bonds have a default rate of 50 or more. I mean, it's just staggering. I just couldn't even believe this was happening. Uh, and we know the ratings agencies gave them A-plus ratings anyway. Uh, the, the whole result of this was that the, the larger banks had, at a minimum, knowledge or reckless disregard of the quality of these loans. I mean, yes, there was actual fraud out there, too, but you don't have to go up to uh, proving an intent to deceive to see that there was still consumer fraud going on en masse. They turned uh, a blind eye to red flags of illegality. So note here, there is both common law and uh, common law and consumer fraud. So how did the two groups of consumers that I'd outlined make out after all of this? Well, in an inter interesting twist on the usual result that it's uh, normally the poorer, more vulnerable group of consumers that ends up getting screwed, uh, getting screwed at all or often the most, here everybody lost out. Uh, large pension funds invested in securitized mortgage bonds, losing billions of dollars. Um, so folks like us had uh, our pension funds often invested in these, so we lost out. But lower-income people uh, suffered, I would, I would hazard to say, more acutely. Low-income people without mortgages suffered only indirectly. Uh, but the low-income people with mortgages were inveigled into purchasing homes they couldn't afford because of the market's insatiable demand for more loans. When a home is a family's only wealth-building asset, the loss is devastating. So the upshot is that trust in financial institutions plummeted after the crash. And it hasn't, uh, it's been restored somewhat but nowhere near to coming back to the level that it was beforehand. Now, if I had more time, I was also going to talk 
well, foreclosure rescue scams, maybe we could bring up later. Uh, land contracts, contracts for deed are very interesting. I hope to be asked some questions about that later. And then finally, I was gonna talk a little about the CFPB, but um, I think I've covered the essential points, thanks. Thank you, it's great to be here, and I wanna thank all the Northwestern folks. I'm deeply grateful to have this opportunity to uh, do research in the area of fraud, and what I'm gonna talk about is uh, a fraud in, in securities markets. I don't know if I can get this thing to go to my presentation. Sorry? Oh, the other arrow, there's another arrow? Okay. Uh, am I going the wrong? Oh, perfect, thank you, thank you so much. Okay, so let me let me uh, begin by uh, kind of level setting, um, and what I'm going to talk about is uh, uh, fraud in securities markets. Um, I want to, uh, in terms of level setting, I want to make a couple of uh, very basic points that kind of provide the theoretical underpinnings for uh, the my presentation and, and the and the paper. Uh, one is. Um, uh, there, a simple economic model suggests that we're going to get fraud when the benefits from the fraud um, uh, are greater than the punishment, where the punishment is adjusted for the probability of detection. And the punishment uh, comes in a couple of different forms, right? One is the obvious, you might go to jail or pay a penalty, but another punishment for fraud is um, reputational loss and stigma. And the idea is that um, uh, people will be, there's, a, there's a, an economic cost to fraud where you, the fraud is, becomes known and people are unwilling to do business with you, or there's a social sig stigma, people don't want you in their friendship group. So, so basically, um, you know, I think it's, you know, I, I approach fraud, better for, better for worse, uh, like kind of the economics of crime generally from this kind of cost-benefit perspective. And, you know, so... The the uh, the the uh, the um, idea here. Another another basic point that I want to make about uh, 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 fraud is in order, and, and, and this is well known, and, and, and I think it, correct me, you know, Emily Eden's work is uh, also uh, reflects this notion that you know there's a symbiotic relationship between fraud and and trust. So you have zero trust. Uh, you're not going to have a lot of fraud because people aren't going to have economic interactions with each other in the in the in the in the first place, and um, uh, and as a consequence of that, the more trust there is in a in a uh, society, uh, then um, uh, the 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 more opportunities uh, there will be for fraud. So we get this phenomenon kind of of, of what I would call bull market. Fraud. In fact, I might call my paper uh, for the symposium "Bull Market Fraud." That is, you know, we 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 observe simultaneously uh, significant amounts of fraud in an economy, and uh, uh, successful uh, e positive economic growth and kind of good things happening. Um, and and the idea there is that. Uh, in the uh, in the economy, um, there will be uh, uh, fraudulent transactions, but not all transactions will be fraudulent. And the transactions that are uh, that are um, uh, not fraudulent are producing a tremendous amount of wealth 
and and uh, and and growth. And so uh, the the idea here is that. Um, uh, you know, fraud is bad, but uh, from an economic perspective, lots of fraud in and of itself is not an existential threat. Rather, the existential threat is that the the the, the incidence of fraud will lead lead to a diminution, a reduction in the levels of trust in the society, which will mean you you, you don't have uh, you know economic. Uh, uh, interactions. And one simple way to think about this is to think about, you know, if in a world of zero, uh, uh, zero uh, trust or very low trust, people uh, will, you have very little fraud, people will, will limit their inner economic interactions to kinship groups and, and things of that, that nature. Uh, so you could have very poor economic performance and very little fraud just because people aren't interacting and when they are interacting, they're interacting in these you know, closely knit, uh, closely knit uh, kinship groups. So, uh, applying some of these basic ideas, I want to I want to make a couple of points about 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 fraud. One is um, when fraud becomes more profitable, we will observe more of it. So it's not surprising that we are seeing or a, a lot of fraud in uh, you know in, in of the kind of Enron variety. A lot of financial markets that executive compensation has fundamentally changed as a lot of people, Maureen McNichols has a very good paper on this from Stanford, uh, that, that the, the payoffs to CEOs from, um, uh, from you know, inflating earnings uh, and getting massive amounts of, of, uh, of, of a payoff from uh, compensation from performance, where the performance is a result of artificially inflated Share prices, uh, you would expect that to create more, 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 more fraud. Um, uh, and similarly, uh, we have uh, that's the sort of the carrot story of more fraud, if you will. There's sort of a, a stick story, which is um, there are the market for corporate control and the uh, rise of activist investors means that uh, managers, top managers, CEOs are are more likely to be the subject of 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 proxy wars, and the subject of, of being ousted from their jobs, where they have per performance. So uh, the 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 uh, the, the, the uh, not committing fraud, if you will, becomes uh, 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 becomes more 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 costly. We don't we can't get by with sort of average performance as uh, uh, as uh, uh, CEOs. So 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 for those reasons. Uh, you know, we would, we would, uh, uh, we would, you know, we would, we would expect surprising. I guess I would say that we're seeing an increase in the in the incidence of uh, uh, in the incidence of, of fraud in 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 securities markets. Now, one, I don't have answers for everything. The big thing that I don't have an answer for that I'm going to be thinking about, you know, people's come is um, uh, is we. One of the things that I've sort of got out of the first panel and that I've been th thinking about is we seem to be going through very long periods of time where there's lots of uh, fraud without, at least to me, and I could be just wrong about this or measuring the wrong thing or looking in the wrong places, without any kind of reduction in levels of, of trust. You know, we seem to see people, consumers, investors, who are, who are over long periods of time 
continually being you know, subjected to things like um, uh, uh, penny stock fraud and and things of that nature and and um, and it's it's it, that is it, that is uh, uh, kind of a a perplexing thing and because I you know as I, I, I you know I, I think that you know it, and uh, we are in a you know we, we, we the, the 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 reality is that if if we come if if this sort of a long uh, period of time where we have high trust may be uh, misplaced uh, high trust comes to an end we're in big trouble from a kind of economic point of view because then people will will step back from being willing to engage in 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 transactions now the most likely explanation i i, I or the, the the most logical explanation is just uh you know the kind of the power of markets right the idea that uh the payoffs from the non-fraudulent transactions are so massively significant and generate such significant societal wealth that we're able to, you know, tolerate a very large amount of fraud. That that may be true. I don't know that. I don't know that that's the answer. Now, in my remaining few minutes, I want to just wrap up by saying that another fraud besides the you know, the, the idea that the, the sort of, uh, you know, there have been the economic incentives to engage in fraud have increased as, as capital markets have become more efficient. The next point I want to make is um, in, in my air field of research and securities regulation, the definition of fraud has expanded significantly over time, number one. And number two, that um, uh, we have... Uh, 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 a, uh, a, a an idea that that anything that can be remotely be characterized as fraud uh, should be vigorously vigorously pursued. If it's a failure of internal controls within a business, the negligence-based opinions of the 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 and 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 and, and things like that, uh, you know, are being pursued in the securities regulation area as kind of basic egregious. Fraud. The, the kind of outer realm of this is a fascinating um, uh, a little tempest that came about in, in legal academia where a sitting commissioner at the Securities and Exchange Commission, along with a pretty well-known Stanford law professor, Joe Grunfest, accused very publicly a Harvard, the Harvard University and a, a well-known Harvard law professor Lucian Bebchuk of engaging in securities fraud. They said, well, uh, 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 what, Lucian was going around to various public companies and telling these companies that they should not have staggered boards of directors. Rather, they should have uh, boards of directors where all the directors were elected in a single year, okay? And, um, uh, and they would propose uh, under Rule 14A8 of the Securities and Exchange Commission, they proposed that in the annual proxy voting of the companies, that this proposal to de-stagger the board of directors be put up for shareholder vote. And they were really successful. Lots of shareholders voted for this. And the basis for the fraud was that in the SEC permitted 500-page defense of this proposal to de-stagger these boards of directors, that uh, uh, Lucian and this Harvard uh, Shoulder Rights Project had 
failed to include certain studies which showed that having staggered boards of directors was actually okay, wasn't so bad, and they mentioned a study that staggered boards of directors are, 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 are bad. And, and, and that's sort of an example, uh, but there are, you know, that, that uh, it used to, to make the, the, the point that I'll close with, which is simply that their costs, because of the, their cost to this kind of ever-expanding definition of fraud, and the more sort of uh, 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 the, 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 as we move into kind of shoehorning less egregious acts into this general umbrella definition of fraud, we have the inevitable worry about the inevitable consequence of destigmatizing fraud. And if, if, if you know, being accused of fraud you know, loses it, its stigma, this means that uh, the costs of being you know, caught out as a fraudster go down and we'll, uh, we'll get it at uh, what might be viewed as, an, what I would view as an inefficiently you know, excessive fraud. This is a kind of a, a consequence of this ever-expanding definition. Thank you very much. Thank you very much to our panelists. Um, it's my hope that as we engage in this discussion, we can really do two things. One, we can take greater advantage of the amazing expertise in particular areas of fraud that we have on the panel, but also that we can have some discussion which looks at fraud more broadly in some of the terms of the earlier panel um, this morning. So I'd like to kick things off um, actually by asking um, Patrice, um, a question, mostly because I was late this morning because I was enrolling um, my elderly cousin in Medicare and the website kept crashing. So I have spent the last um, couple of weeks learning a lot about Medicare and Medicare fraud. Um, and I also spent some time talking to my brother who ran the Medicare Medicaid fraud unit of the US Attorney's Office in Miami-Dade. So my question really goes to some of the implicit assumptions in what you were saying um, that I thought maybe you could spell out um, a little bit more. Because as I read your abstract and heard your talk, you were implicitly advocating for value-based care on, on two very different grounds, as I understood it. One was sort of that it's not going to have the incentives for fraud that are built into the fee-for-service program. And that while it may have some of its own fraud-inducing properties, they're going to be less. But I'm a little bit skeptical of that. Um, my brother told me that the plan, well, that their work under the Medicare Advantage plans, which are value-based, um, is taking over the office, that there's rife fraud in these. And then on October 8th, I think it was, the New York Times published their own investigation, which showed that the top 10 Medicare Advantage plans um, were all being investigated for fraud at very, very high levels. So it's not really clear to me um, what the sort of empirical basis is. Of course, the New York Times is not an empirical basis, so I'm sure you have better data, but what the empirical basis is for that um, assumption. I also want to push back a little bit based on my research this week, which is admittedly very cursory, um, on the idea 
see that these Medicare Advantage and value-based plans are really going to increase trust in the system. Because as I went to look, it seemed like the ghost of managed care really was there haunting these plans. And that there was a good deal of evidence that they tried to block access. Patients would report having to file for pre-approval, file again, file again, file again. Um, they'd have to fight with their doctors. There were doctors who didn't want to do certain kinds of things or would say, oh, you have Medicare Advantage. Well, I don't want to deal with you. I will if I have to, but I don't want to deal with you. And so that seems to me um, to be a pretty significant trust eroding problem and maybe even one that's going to be greater than sort of systemic. The hospitals are messing around with their billing practices in terms of how it would affect me um, as an individual patient. So I thought it would be great if you could expand a little on this because it's a question of such importance and I'm really glad that you decided to address it. So I will turn the floor over to you. Great. Um, so well, I, what I'll start with is I'll just say that I think that the government is making the assumption <laughs> that switching to value-based uh, care is somehow going to solve the fraud problem. I don't think that that's true. Uh, I think that we're simply shifting the fraud risk, right? So instead of uh, overutilization, we're going to possibly have problems with quality data. Uh, and um, as you were saying, um, possibility of people being denied certain services because, oh, maybe the surgery is too tricky and if it fails, now my quality data is down and I might not get the, the money that I'm used to uh, receiving. Um, I do think that value-based care can be an improvement in terms of quality of care, right? So I think that if you have a system where all of your doctors are connected and communicating with each other rather than you going individually to see all of these different specialists, um, I think it helps with coordination of care. Uh, and so I think that that's a good thing. Um, but I definitely agree that there's still a huge fraud risk here. And it's hard to know how much at this point because the, um, the shift is happening very gradually. Uh, and it only began in 2016. And so I don't have a, um, an estimate right, of, of how much fraud this is ca causing. Um, but what I can say is I think it's a huge mistake to be implementing these types of programs and not looking more seriously at the types of fraud that might exist and then trying to um, deal, address that directly in its own fraud law. Like, um, because that's basically the mistake we made with Medicare and Medicaid, right? We didn't deal with the fraud issue. We continued to let uh, fee-for-service be this crazy problem that's only gotten worse and worse. Uh, and now we're trying to address it 50 years later. So I, I hope that that does not happen with this. Uh, and then with respect to your point about whether or not uh, value-based plans uh, will increase trust, um, I, I think that the managed care issue is huge. Uh, I really do think that people are going to be worried about whether this is really about rationing care uh, and whether their care quality will go down. And so I do think that there is a huge danger here if we don't, if the government uh, or somebody doesn't try to control this narrative, right, and explain uh, the differences here. And, and one thing that I think is really interesting 
as well as you know, patients themselves don't think of fee-for-service as bad, right? Because um, nobody sees more care as bad care, right? So if you're getting more and more services, you sort of think that you're getting good care. And so I think that there's going to be a real hurdle here in, in trying to convince people that uh, a value-based plan is more trustworthy than a fee-for-service. That's really interesting, and I wonder if you could expand just a little bit on if you were the czar and you could write the anti-fraud um, rules going after Medicare Advantage, um, how would you do it? Because it's been so sneaky. Yeah. I mean, they've gone down to Nicaragua to enroll expats and then pay the, the bailing rates down there. I mean, there seems to be sort of no end to the creativity um, in the fraud. And I know your pricing discussed sort of taking existing laws and sort of massaging them a little bit and applying, but if you, if you had all the power in the world to quash this, um, what would you do? I don't, I don't know that I could quash it. I think people are far too creative, right? I think it's a problem. Uh, and I, and I, like I said, I think we need to specifically uh, address issues of quality data uh, and things like that, but I don't have um, the silver bullet here either. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, well, thank you uh, so much. Um, the next sort of specialized question I wanted to ask was to Linda. I was really um, intrigued by your discussion of mortgages, um, but since I come from Chicago, I guess I sort of have to ask a Chicago type of question, and, and that would really be why would it be bad for consumers to be a little bit more wary a little less trustful in banks and the sort of advice they give or less trustful um, in mortgage brokers, it would seem to me that might be a good thing. So I, I was shopping for, for mortgage and I didn't know that mortgage brokers could be negotiated with. And I mean, I teach at the University of Chicago. You know? um, but then a while they started to seem like used car salesmen to me. Something just seemed wrong in their tone. And I did a little research and found that you had to bargain with them. And this was sort of news to me. So it seems to me that maybe a little skepticism, my sort of natural skepticism, saved me a real lot of money on my mortgage. So maybe that would help other consumers as well. And sort of why do we assume that's bad in your model of the world? Uh, the assumption was only there because I don't have a Okay. <laughs> I actually don't assume. I think it would be a good thing consumers were more skeptical, or at least the group of consumers, I mean, I've dealt with low and moderate income consumers since I've also, I teach a clinic most years too, for over 40 years, mm -hmm. um, and that group does need to be more skeptical. Part of the problem, again, is the creativity of the frauds. Uh, affinity marketing, for instance, involves taking people who are demographically like the target population and you know, looking them right in the eye, and you know, you can, and I've literally, I've seen this from mm -hmm. many of my clients, you can trust me, I'm from this neighborhood, I worship in your neighborhood, you know, my mother lives here, and then of course, next thing you know, they're out $400,000. Uh, same thing particularly with Spanish-speaking people who are trying to modify their mortgage, but they can't speak English well enough to deal directly uh, with the bank. So some of them have hired these modification experts, and one of them who later went to prison, I know, had uh, taken my guy who's pretty, my client was 
very skeptical person in general, but I think he felt vulnerable because of his lack of English proficiency. I looked him in the eye and said, I'm just you. I'm an immigrant, too. You know, you can trust me. And I asked the client, why did you trust him? Because I could tell by heart he was a trustworthy guy. So I don't know how much skepticism is going to help with that. It's a long-winded answer. That, that's really interesting because an Uber driver on the way here um, just discussed her experience um, basically in that kind of marketing that you're describing. I might not have um, seen this as a really, really important point before this morning, but after the rise, when she described all of her various businesses of relational uh, relationship marketing, um, it's a very salient point. So thank you for introducing that to the discussion. I think it adds an important element. Um, so Miriam, we have a question from the audience, I don't know who, which is, if an individual is deemed a victim in the Temple case because the individual lost the benefit of the prestige of the degree on their resume, how does that impact an analysis of a school like Columbia where prestige is baked in and exists external to the ranking? That's really interesting. Um, and obviously, we won't know. Uh, I, I do find it very interesting if someone were to try to sue Columbia right now, um, I, I would find that my, my and torts folks will have to give me some advice here, but I'm finding it unlikely someone's going to win uh, such a lawsuit, so stay tuned. But I will say one thing that that question reminds me of. Um, so if you're vindicating these prestige rights, so one thing that happened in the Temple case, so at the motion for acquittal, the judge says, no, no, look at this prestige, you know, the students were hurt. Um, but then the sentencing comes. And the government tried to say, oh, well, you know, because sentencing is hinges on amount of money involved. The government says, oh, look at how much tuition they paid, and we'll do some back of the envelope calculation. This guy should go, Parat uh, should go to jail for many, many years. And the judge balked and said, no, this was a real MBA program. Like, this wasn't like, you know, a predatory school like a Trump University where, where you're not getting real classes. And so the judge actually gives Parat very little time compared to what the government's asking for, only 15 months in prison. All of that suggests to me that the judge himself, it's almost like he was suffering buyer's remorse as he read that opinion. <laughs> and, and, and I will just say one additional thing that this relates to, since we're talking about Columbia, because I, I didn't say this during my talk, the reason I find it so problematic, that, that case that vindicates the right of the student who says, I should have been able to go to the number one ranked school and this wasn't real, is that you're vindicating the treadmill that provide, that created all the incentives for this behavior in the first place. So there was um, Professor Mason's point, which is that people who commit fraud like Picasso and Picasso, well, if a case like the Parat prosecution makes people say, yeah, my prestige is worth something, I can trust the rankings, that means the rankings are king. If the rankings are king, that doesn't give schools less of a reason to engage in fraud, it just gives them more of an engagement a reason to engage in fraud, but by other means. The, the answer they take away from watching the Parat case isn't let's not do it, it's let's not do it and get caught. And indeed, the fact that Columbia didn't pull its rankings um, until its own mathematics professor uh, posted a scathing letter suggests to me that's exactly it. Okay, thank you. Um, this was a question from the audience, I think to all panelists or to any who want to address it. Would it be more efficient for regulators to keep minor instances of fraud confidential from markets to avoid overcorrective reductions in consumer trust? If disclosing these violations signals that the markets can't be trusted, 
would any marginal benefit be brought about by market regulation be outweighed? Um, Linda, do you want to start with this one? Yeah, I think actually uh, prosecutorial discretion plays a big role here, I would estimate, and that many, many small frauds are not taken on by the, the SEC or Attorney General or something, so it's uh, kind of built into the process. I don't, I, I, I don't see too many prosecutions of minor frauds, I have to say. There are incentives for the Anyone else want to jump in here? I'd just say it, it, one really interesting aspect of government regulation of fraud is the effect that it has on consumers, right? And so uh, one, one uh, potential problem, not, not that I'm against government regulation, but one sort of cost of government regulation is um, uh, the, uh, the tendency of government regulation to make consumers think that the government is protecting them from fraud. And you know, the optimal situation would be to have a very effective system of government regulation, but for consumers to think that the system of government regulation is ineffective, so that the consumers will kind of take it upon themselves to to police fraud, because we're never going to get rid of it, eliminate it. But my sense is that we have sort of the opposite, which is fairly ineffective government policing of fraud, but consumers t seem to think that the government is going to protect them uh, when often it does not. Oh, Mary? I was just going to say, I think that it's that there are certain systems where, you know, a single fraud may so uh, deeply harm a system that, of course, we'd all want to know about it and we'd have an immediate reaction. But then there are other systems where it, this is sort of this question of how much cheating should you reveal. It, it, in, its, in and of itself, the one little instance of cheating doesn't really shake our trust. It's the aggregate. And the problem with regulators sort of holding back information is at some point there should be a tipping point. And it's not clear to me who should decide when the tipping point has been reached. And, and I don't trust any, especially when you have regulatory turnover, I think it becomes even dicier proposition that we're going to make the right decisions when we, to, to reveal that the tipping point has been passed. Anyone else seek to weigh in? Okay, well, our next question is about pharma fraud. And it says, one unfortunate outcome of the crackdown on opioids is that it's now basically impossible to get pain medication. Doctors are now overly cautious in prescribing medicine, and now patients are suffering in a different way. Is this sort of outcome, reactive overregulation, unavoidable? I mean, I think to some extent it is uh, unavoidable. I think you have the issue now of um, doctors not only just seeing the opioid problem in general, but all of the crackdowns, right, and all of the prosecutions uh, based on that. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it's, unfortunately, I do think it's inevitable that the doctors are now in this situation where they're deciding to uh, pull back, right? And unfortunately, it is greatly harming uh, consumers, uh, or patients, rather, uh, when they actually are dealing with pain. And I've seen um, uh, I, I read a study about uh, problems with patients who have chronic pain, right, and how 
sometimes their access to the medication that they need is being uh, cut off uh, from um, be because as a result of these uh, fraud schemes. So unfortunately, it does seem to be the inevitable consequence here. Okay, I'd like to ask um, the panelists if they want to weigh in on um, John's sort of your, your point about Emily, about the connection between fraud and trust. Um, being someone who thinks about trust most of the time and fraud almost never, I find this really intriguing. And I wonder um, if in the consumer area, Linda, you buy into this sort of trade-off. And the same for you, um, Miriam and Catrice. Well, I have to say it's this notion or this way of looking at it is kind of new to me, even though I went to the University of Chicago, so how I missed, <laughs> missed that point. But um, I think it is a very fruitful avenue, and I want to think about it more, which is me sort of uh, kicking the can down the road, but that's my answer. Well, I teach yeah. there now, and I hadn't heard of it either. That's why I find it so intriguing and want, want to hear more. Um, Miriam, you have any it, thoughts on this? I mean, doesn't it matter also how competitive the market is? Because um, I think about this. Um, so after Varsity Blues was announced, I sort of breathlessly called my daughter, who at the time was in 11th grade. Her reaction was the equivalent on the phone of a rolling her eyes and like, duh, mom, what did you think, right? Of course it's not a, an even playing field. But of course, she still applied to all the various prestigious colleges that one would apply to. So I think there's, this, uh, there's a lot you can get away with if there's sort of no choice but to participate in that market. Um, and so I'm not sure. I understand, like, in the aggregate, eventually people just stop buying stuff and they only go within their kinship groups. Um, but the, before you get there, there's a you know, wide range of behaviors that you sort of feel like you're stuck with a bad market and you have no choice. Um, and so that, I imagine, is what leads to a level of uh, cynicism and, and estrangement and disengagement that is itself very bad for society. And I would say I, I think that healthcare is a bit unique here when we're talking about uh, this relationship because you never know when you're going to face some sort of health crisis and you still have to go to that hospital and put some level of trust into the doctors who are, are treating you. Uh, and I think it's harder to uh, find the, the real trade-off between um, fraud and, and trust in, in healthcare in particular because trust is so foundational to that doctor-patient relationship. I think it's just a little bit harder. That's really interesting because when you move that way, it makes me think that maybe if you have um, a decrease in trust in market writ large, you might not be crowding out all trust, but you might be bringing it sort of moving people to an individual trust level. Like, I don't trust the hospital, so when I go to the ER, I'm calling my doctor and saying, you get your butt down here and you take care of me. Um, so we might have some of that substitution going on. And I, I could say to that point as well, even though we have very low trust in the medical system in general, people's trust in their own medical providers is 80-something percent. Like, it's really high. Um, so people do trust their own doctors, um, but they have a problem when worrying about the system in general. So I think your, your point is right on. That's very interesting. Actually, Lisa, I was just going to say where you really see the point you just made uh, apply with a, in, astonishing power is in the legal profession, where you know years and years ago, 
people uh, didn't really select lawyers. This is, you know, general counsels of corporations would select law firms. Now, people don't really select law firms anymore. They select you know, lawyers within law firms uh, on the basis of the reputation of the firm, but the lawyers within the firm. And so, you know, a lot of this just has to do with improvements in information markets, that choosing a law firm is kind of crude relative to, well, I have, you know, kind of pretty granular information about the particular expertise in antitrust or tax or what have you of particular people within the firm and selecting on that, that basis. Yeah, I think the granularity of information available is, is really important. And when I think about some of the debates that Linda brought up about disclosure in consumer markets and how people don't read all of the fine um, terms. I mean, I do, and I drove my real estate lawyer crazy. He said he hadn't had experiences like eight years old, hadn't had an experience like this since the first year of law school, going over the standard um, purchase contract with me in Illinois. Um, so I actually do read these things, but when I do things like credit cards, I don't, but I do go to these aggregation websites and type in what's important to me in terms of the terms, and I get sort of a personalized set of disclosures, if you will. I don't care what the interest rate is because I pay my bills. I just want my miles. And so I'm able to get these personalized disclosures. And I think that's also a really big change in the market um, introduced by technology that might shift a little bit some possible approaches um, to regulation. So I'm, I'm really curious what you think about the role of apps um, in terms of informing consumers and empowering them and maybe giving even people who don't have a lot of time, um, I, I mean, I don't have a lot of time, so I just go to these apps, I type in miles, blah, 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 it takes about three minutes or two minutes, and I know which credit card offers I should take. So I'm wondering if you think technology and the um, widespread ownership of smartphones um, might influence these issues. It would, it does. But on the other hand, it also influences the degree of consumer fraud, opportunistic fraud that can take place. So we're up in the ante on both scores. So it's really, it's our, it's our time on energy that's at stake because, well, after all, you, you know, you gotta uh, take the dogs for a walk and make a dinner and do your homework and whatever else. So. I guess for me, as I listened here um, from the back, what was sort of startling to me was the amount of faith that people had in government regulation. Now, I don't say this just because I sit in Chicago I, I, you know, or anything like this, but I say it because I think of like a Trump um, next presidency. Would all of this love of government regulation and leaving it to the government rather than the market um, be as favorably described if we were in a different regulatory milieu? I mean, would you trust them to regulate clean water, for example? Would that be very good for you or would you want to have some empowered consumers running about just in case you got a government regulatory regime um, that was captured by industry or had whatever other weird motive they might have for doing the wrong thing. So I'm curious a little bit for people to explain why the faith in government to deal with this is as strong as it is well, given the last you know, several years of we're all hypocrites, history. right? We're all hypocrites. It's good to change with whoever's in power and it yeah. does. Um, but admitting that, I mean, who else can who else can be a countervailing party to uh, impact of the market? 
well, various things to empower consumers. I, mean, I think the market itself, I mean, I'm not saying that we should eschew government regulation. I'm just saying that um, sort of if you have a public and a private antitrust action, maybe we need a lot of little private attorneys general, as Abe Chase once said, sort of running around in addition for when the government falls down on the job. I don't see them as mutually exclusive. Um, we could have good government regulation or try to have good government regulation while at the same time um, doing things to empower the market and consumers to police. Well, we do have a private attorney general when it comes to consumers. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are fee-shifting provisions in, in every consumer fraud statute I've, I've seen. Uh, it's not a real remunerative profession, though. For, it's very difficult for lawyers to survive with full-time consumer practice, even if they're doing class actions. I think a lot of them are not. It's a little bit skin of the teeth. And isn't that all still embedded with the government? So whistleblowing programs, who are you whistleblowing to? To the government, they're going to give you money. And the key TAM actions, you're still looking to see, will DOJ join, right? I'm thinking of False Claims Act. Yeah. So it seems to me government's in there no matter what. Government is in there in part no matter what, but you still could have private institutions like trade associations that aggregate information, public interest organizations that provide, let's say, telephone plans. You could have a private do-gooder organization that would make the information available, sort of that would maybe realize Elizabeth Warren's vision of the world in some sense, at least in terms of disclosures and other types of information things. So it's not beyond the pale that private institutions could arise. And I guess for me, I'm just putting out there, you know, um, whether there might be something worth doing in the market that isn't government related for the times in history when the government doesn't um, evidence a tremendous interest in or well, alternative. an enormous growth in, in nonprofits. I mean, particularly during the Trump years. Right, or alternatively, that's also the argument for state AGs. Um, because they aren't necessarily all going to be uh, from the same uh, party, the political party. And I, I was just going to say, I mean, I think the idea of having an organization that compiles all of this information is wonderful, um, but the question is whether or not the consumer is actually going to seek that out. So, like, for example, um, we have a physician payment which requires... Um, pharmaceutical companies and medical device manufacturers to report how much money they are giving to doctors. Um, and there is this publicly available website, and it seems that nobody checks it, and nothing has changed. The doctors that were getting outsized amount of money mm -hmm. from uh, pharma are still doing so. Uh, so I think that that's part of the problem as well, is with whether people will actually take that time to uh, investigate even if the information is there. Especially in healthcare where your, your, your um, natural inclination is to trust your doctor. That's interesting. The, ri the rise of these firms, rideshare firms like, uh, like Lyft and, and, uh, and Uber, you know, kind of an interesting, um, provide an interesting point of departure for thinking about some of these issues because, you know, the, the one of the presumable advantages of the old-fashioned taxi cab was they were subject to this massive regulation and the medallion system and they had uh, uh, drivers were vetted and fees were regulated mm -hmm. uh, and nobody seemed to care at all uh, about you know that, that that 
that infrastructure from a trust standpoint that infrastructure of government regulation provided no competitive edge as far as i can tell uh, you know and, and and people just are kind of trusting the market and you know lifts and ubers you know reputational incentives to police their own driver force to you know protect people who are using these uh who are using these services kind of interesting yeah, that is actually very interesting, and it would be great if somebody were to look into it, because of course Uber does have one category of service where you have to have the chauffeur license from the state, and there is a pricing differential, and so it's sort of an interesting yeah, way inter to look. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's an yeah. interesting way to look at um, how much people really value um, yeah. government regulation. Um, right. And this is, of course, not to say that there haven't been problems with these services as far as, you know, endangering passengers and things like that, but that, uh, but but you know the question is you know how much how serious is the problem is it different than the you know similar problems in the in the you know alternative uh, services. Well, I'd like to open it up now for our panelists to ask questions of one another, since you're probably the people in the room who have thought the most about these issues, um, each from your own perspective. Do you have questions? Um, about the other person's subject matter area that you think would be interesting to explore. I mean, one question I had about, particularly we're related to mortgage fraud, but but also, you know, I guess a lot of people have been, you know, like me, get these emails about, you know, so-and-so has, uh, uh, you know, has $87 million in an offshore account in Nigeria or somewhere, and, and you know, do you want to, you know, that, that a lot of these frauds Including mortgage fraud to a large extent, involve you know the, the involve situations in which the consumers are participating in the fraud, right? The consumers aren't always the victim, and you had you know in these no doc loans and the mortgage crisis, you had a lot of people misrepresenting their incomes and claiming that they could make payments back. That um, you know that we have uh, you know that that uh, that that. Um, you know that, that uh, you know. I think consumer fraud is a significant problem. I'm not blaming the victim. I'm simply pointing out that you know, in 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 significant uh, numbers of these cases, there are you know, you have situations in which consumers are are participating in fraud. Absolutely, a great point to be, uh, to bring up, and probably would have addressed it if I'd had more time too. There are a number of studies out there, I mean, you could contest the methods maybe, but a number that show that the incidence of borrowers themselves misstating their income on applications was actually very low. Now, my experience was a little skewed because of dealing with low and moderate income people, yeah. but almost universally, it was the broker that put it in, and you know, I'd show the people the application afterwards, and they were, you can't, you can't fake surprise, the kind of surprise that I saw there. Um, but I, I, that said, I have been told by somebody else who's um, actually uh, uh, working for the FHA now on a, on a high level that um, she did see a lot more of borrowers gaming the system themselves when they uh, when they were more affluent, middle class. Just one point, other point I would make with respect yep. to kind of regulation is. Um, Regulatory incentives play also play a role in, in this fraud. And, 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 and if you look at, you know, the SEC, which is the agency I study most, 
um, you know, they are very interested in showing that each year they brought a lot of enforcement actions mm -hmm. uh, and that they've collected a lot of fines. And if you look at their, a lot of fines, and if you look at their testimony before congressional oversight committees, and you look at their, you know, their annual reports, they behave as though kind of those are the vectors along, along which their performance is evaluated. Are we collecting a lot of fines and, and are we, you know, have we, is, are the number, is the number of enforcement actions we brought this year greater than the, than the year before? And this clearly affects and maybe I would suggest distorts their behavior that they want, you know, they, they want to expand the definition of fraud and have, you know, lots of enforcement actions uh, for technical violations against deep-pocketed uh, defendants. So, you know, that their incentives to go after, uh, you know, we saw this with the Madoff debacle, um, you know, common garden variety, things like Ponzi schemes is, uh, is, is, is not as great as it might otherwise be if we had a more sophisticated me methodology for sort of evaluating the performance of the enforcement division of the SEC. Um, well, Miriam, I have a question for you, because in your pricey, you talked about the expressive function of law, and that was a little bit left out of the presentation, but I thought it was super interesting in terms of your basic point about the dangers of the types of frauds that, and prosecutions that you were yes. discussing. So I wondered if you could share with us a little bit of your uh, reflection on that. Right. And I was sort of, the foil I was responding to is, you know, the usual concern, particularly when fraud starts to, when a criminal fraud prosecution starts to look less and less like the paradigmatic, you know, A induced B to give him his money and then like, you know, I, I sent you something that was completely junk, um, is that usually it's like, oh, was it sort of innocent behavior, the unwary innocent or something like that, government overreach. That's not going on in these cases. Both Parat and uh, the Varsity Blues parents like totally know they're doing horrible things. So I was more interested in what um, messages do those prosecutions send in order to say, here's where our property is. What do they send either about certain markets or what do those messages, what sent do they send about certain entities? So that's why I was very struck. And when I teach this to my class, they're always struck by the denomination of USC as a victim. Uh, because no one in my class buys that. Uh, they, and in fact, there's was all these podcasts out there, so this isn't in the pricey, but I will put some of it in the paper, uh, that suggested that USC sort of knew all along uh, that some of its coaches were kind of taking some money. Um, and notice, none of this comes out, and there's no incentive for the government to even bring it out, uh, because there is no need to show reliance. All you say is USC was deprived of the honest services of its employee and there was some question about whether they knew but you know it didn't cut there wasn't enough there at, at the trial so it's oh they're a victim that to me is a problematic uh, for expressive statements especially when people don't trust in it um, so they end up it ends up not just uh, tainting the process it actually taints the government and people see the government itself as look what you did you took your limited resources to protect USC and I think that is itself a, a, a terrible failure, uh, if that's all you get out of, of that whole Varsity Blues prosecution. John, do you see a similar expressive um, function issue going on in securities? Do you think that's something to really think about in terms of these prosecutions are brought? Um, I'm not sure. So the, the, uh, the um, you know, a question, 
I see kind of the causal move going the other way in a, in a weird way, which is we have um, uh, the government will bring cases in which they are um, you know, trying to, uh, in addition to kind of correcting what they view to be wrongdoing, shape the markets and market participants' perception of what fraud is and to... Uh, Know, to uh, take behavior, sometimes, you know, in my experience, behavior is ordinary and customary market behavior, say among activist short sellers or something like that, and to say, we want to define this conduct as, we want to define this conduct as, as, uh, as fraudulent. And, and, and I, I think that there are, um, Costs associated with that strategy, you can you, know, you get kind of convictions and notches in the regulator's belt. But we, you know, we may end up expanding our, our the legal definition of fraud beyond recognition and really undermining the sort of signaling of that 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 a you know government anti-fraud action should uh, you know should should really have. So I mean, it's clear. You know, there. Uh, there are many have told me, you know, that, well, you know, settling these enforcement actions with the SEC is just a cost of doing business and it's done routinely. And, uh, uh, you know, the, the, there, the, a lot of market participants and lawyers seem to be behaving as though there's very little reputational benefit because, you know, every, you know, just many, many, you know, huge financial institutions like, you know, Bank and J.P. Morgan Chase and many, many, you know, are, are subject to deferred prosecution where they've, you know, kind of blithely admitted that they're fraudsters and there doesn't seem to be, you know, and I kind of lament the the lack of reputational hit uh, that, you know, firms like, you know, Goldman Sachs, has, you know, does not seem to suffer as a consequence of activities that are just kind of, you know, bad. Well, thank you. I mean, this brings us to the end of this panel, and I want to thank our panelists because for me, someone who didn't know a whole lot about fraud, hearing just how severe the problems are from defining it to catching it to prosecuting it to the signals the prosecution send, it really, I think, makes it clear why it's worthwhile for us to be here today discussing this subject in this way. And it's very nice because I think it signals this should be the beginning rather than the end um, of the conversation. So I want to thank all our panelists for participating. I personally learned a lot, so thank you very much.